0: Welcome to the World Nomads podcast delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous independent traveller.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the World Nomads podcast. This is our destination episode featuring Zambia. So Phil, tell me, what is appealing about it outside of having the world's largest waterfall?
2: Well, it's also got all the big five animals if you're thinking of taking a safari and some pretty amazing national parks And all of the national parks, by the way, and lots of the accommodation near it as as well, is unfenced. So elephants and lions are known to wander around some of the towns, so you can really take a walk on the wild side there.
1: Mm, Feeling like there's a bit of a difference between an elephant and a lion wandering into a town.
2: An elephant and a lion walk into a bar, (laughs) (laughs) everybody else leaves. Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) Look, there's also heaps of cool hidden things that a nomad would like to soak up, pun intended, like hot springs alongside a rainforest trail, caves with prehistoric rock art, and you can dine on the biggest edible mushroom in the world. a couple of facts Uh, the capital is Lusaka they speak English and Swahili and did you know we've got uh, some World Nomads phrase books that you can download and we've got one uh, about Swahili Swahili, so you can get some Swahili phrases I'll put a Link to that in the show notes.
1: Yeah, all freshly updated too. But let's start the episode with Catherine Marshall. She began her career as a hard-nosed journalist, <laughs> reporting on news. Phil, and that was in her native South, uh, native of South South Africa. Twenty years later, she's in Sydney writing uh, travel articles.
2: Uh, yeah, look, one of the articles uh, that uh, she's written that really caught our attention is about one of nature's greatest spectacles, and it's the Kinsaka bat migration in Zambia.
1: Now, why we reached out to her is because often we share stories of taking a safari in Africa or even seeing, as an example, the wildebeest migration in Tanzania. But bats, that's different.
3: We're keen to know just how many bats we're talking. Well, would the the number 2 million, sorry, 12 million, would 12 million surprise you?
2: That must just about blot out the sun. Although oh, it's actually. at night, so the moon. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, the sun is just going down as they emerge. So um, it certainly blots out the twilight. And when they return um, in the morning, the sun is starting to rise. So they once again blot out the dawn. So why the pilgrimage?
2: Going somewhere to eat, obviously.
3: They are. It's, it's just one massive feast, Um, They come from all over equatorial Africa. Bats have been tracked from uh, uh, Uganda to Tanzania, uh, Cameroon, I believe. Um, Of course, uh, countries in in eastern southern Africa, Zambia's in southern Africa itself. And who knows how these uh, creatures first learned about this tiny little swamp forest in northeastern Zambia, but they somehow did.
2: Maybe it was... Bat Instagram, uh, you know.
3: <laughs> Bat Instagram? That's the, don't even laugh, Catherine. That's bad. <laughs> well, I think perhaps the bats have a, a form of communication that we haven't discovered yet. And, well, of course they do. Um, A lot of bats use echolocation, but these particular fruit bats actually don't. So it's some very deep uh, and primordial instinct that leads them to Abandon temporarily their uh, their regular homeland, and to congregate for just just over two months, from the end of October to the beginning of January every year, um, in this tiny little forest in remote northeastern Zambia. 12 million fruit bats. Just explain what that must sound like. Yes, the sound, I'll I'll tell you what it sounds like. And then if you'd like to, I can tell you what it smells like. (laughs) Please. (laughs) Um, By the way, this 12 million is an estimate. Some estimates actually go as high as 15 million. So they do uh, emerge from the forest um, gradually. One's ears do have an opportunity to adapt to the, the sound. A, a couple of scouts will come out of the forest um, and uh, determine whether the sun uh, is, has sunk far enough for, them, for the rest of the uh, group to, to emerge. And so as they, they start to arise, there's a, a, it sounds like a, a, a gargantuan beehive, so a lot of a buzzing sound. Um, but once the, the, the lot of them is in the sky, um, it's just an absolute outlandish cacophony of uh, shrieking and shouting and screaming and rasping. It's as if they all have to have their say about something. It's it's quite extraordinary, really. And the smell? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, one views them from there are four hides. It might have actually changed because. Um, the camp where I stayed uh, when I was there a couple of years ago, I believe, has been uh, refurbished. And at that time, there were four hides um, located around the the forest. Um, it's a it's a it's not a very large area. And so, generally, what you'll do is you'll ca- climb up into a waterberry tree or a, an African mahogany. These are really towering, towering trees. Um, I am rather scared of heights, and so that was probably the, the worst part of the expedition. Um, and you hope like hell that uh, that you're going to avoid any of the bat droppings, but there is a very intense smell of guano, I suppose. Um, it's, it's a very uh, primordial, earthy, um, natural experience, shall we say.
2: But with so much guano on the ground, that must be... Make it a very fertile part of Zambia as
3: well. Well, it is, and um, and I think it's because of this fertility that uh, the bats actually uh, congregate here. So they eat their body weight in fruit every night. They, they <laughs> arise, they set off in all different directions, and they will fly all nights, all night long. Some of them, uh, some mothers with pups um, clinging to their underbellies. And they will, will consume around about 250 grams of fruit, uh, sour plums, loquats, waterberries um, and then they'll return to the forest before sunrise um, to rest.
2: I'm just doing a little bit of maths in my head, which I'm not good at. 250 <laughs> grams multiplied by 12 million. That's a lot of fruit.
3: It's a lot of fruit, isn't it? And you wouldn't expect uh, flying over this part of the world that it would be such a fertile place. Um, You do have these little forest clumps, which, of course, are lush and green. But there are a lot of savannah lands and a lot of dry patches. But evidently, the bats know where to find this fruit and, and it's available. And that's why they keep on returning.
1: So outside the traditional safari that you can take in an African country,
3: why would you recommend this one? Well, wouldn't you be interested in seeing 12 million fruit bats having a great, delicious party?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, this
2: must be a very important part of the ecosystem because they must be helping to spread this fruit, dropping the seeds everywhere.
3: Of course, yes, they, they're dispersing. I suppose, you know, we're surprised that there's, that so much fruit exists in this wilderness, and yet uh, just by by going out in search of it, the bats are also then perpetu- perpetuating its growth, so um, dispersing seeds um, in that guano that we spoke about. Um, but can I actually just say, I'm not sure if you're aware, but of course we do. you mentioned the, the wildebeest migration in Tanzania and Kenya. Most people tend to think that is the the world's biggest uh, animal migration, but it's actually this bat migration that is the the largest migration of mammals since bats are mammals in the world. A lot of people are quite squeamish when it comes to bats. Um, They're actually really beautiful creatures. They're very similar to the flying foxes that we get here in Sydney where I live. And um, so it, it for some people, it might be a bit of of putting the idea of, of climbing into a tree and being surrounded by these rather eerie creatures. But it is an opportunity to witness the world's largest mammal migration and also to see a part of Africa that is not always considered when people are booking safaris or trying to decide where to to take their safari. I would really encourage people who are considering a safari in Africa to consider Zambia. Um, it's a It's a comparatively stable country. Um, it has a magnificent park close to Kasanka called South Luangwa and indeed when I did this bat safari I first um, did a safari in South Luangwa National Park. Um, and there you can see the big five, uh, plenty of elephants, lions, uh, you know, hippos, all those charismatic animals that you'd expect to see on safari. It's a magnificent environment, but few people know about it. There are a couple of smaller parks in Zambia, which are being uh, rehabilitated. One of them is called Luwe Plains. Um, and another one is um, Banguelu Wetlands, which is north of Kassanka. And in fact, if you were doing a safari to Kasanka, it would make sense to then continue northwards uh, to try and see, see the uh, rare and endangered uh, Shubal, which it's a bird and uh, it's quite a large bird. It would stand sort of weight heist to a, an average height person. Um, and it has a rather, uh, it has a beak that makes it look quite, um, quite primeval, um, a little bit, uh,
2: like some kind of Jurassic animal. All right, we'll find a photo of those. definitely.
1: Well, you have written a wonderful article about your experience and you've included in that five other unusual migrations, um, which include the sardines in South Africa, which are quite famous. But we'll share that in show notes. Catherine, thank you so much
3: for fitting us into your busy schedule. Oh, that's a pleasure. It's been lovely chatting to you.
2: A couple of other unusual uh, animal migrations from around the world. Zebras in Botswana, which uh, holds the record for Africa's longest land mammal migration. And there's a dragonfly migration in India, but there's a bit of a sad twist to that one. Most of the dragonflies don't live long enough to complete it. Oh, Yeah, a bit sad. Is that
1: because they don't have a long life?
2: Yeah. And I imagine they just sort of reproduce as they go along.
1: Yeah, fascinating Roll,
2: Rolling dragonfly mall. There you go. <laughs>
1: well, speaking of survival, Christy Eaton is a travel writer too. She says she's cartled in China, she stared down bison in South Dakota and was lost in Samoa, all for the story. But... I really don't think anything could have prepared her for what would happen in Zambia.
4: Um, so I was selected um, to be the Fistula Foundation's inaugural writer-in-residence. Um, and it was a program for journalists um, to be able to see their um, what they do up close and personal. And so I went there for three weeks in October of 2018.
1: And what happened? <laughs>
4: Um, Well, I actually had a great time. I mean, I worked very hard. I wrote about 15 stories. Um, I um, got to see their programs up close and got to see um, their outreach efforts and um, meet women and learn their stories. So it was all very powerful. Um, the last few days there, I started to think that maybe I had food poisoning or I just thought my stomach wasn't adapting to the food very well. Um, And I've traveled extensively and um, I just felt a little off, but not like horrible. I just wasn't really sure. Um, I ended up I didn't leave early or anything. I completed my time there and came back to the U S and a couple of days later, I still wasn't feeling, um, better. So I ended up going to the doctor and, um, I explained the situation and they ended up testing me for, for malaria. And, um, they called me back later that afternoon and said I had it. There's a couple of strains of it. And I had the most severe strain.
2: Of course you did.
4: Yeah. <laughs> um, I ended up being hospitalized um, three times and it affected like my ability to walk and kind of just function. Um, So I had a couple of blood transfusions because it impacted my blood and my red blood cell count. Yeah, like I said, it affected my ability to walk. And so this was all in November that I was hospitalized about three times. And then um, in December, I went to physical therapy and relearned kind of how to walk and um work out again because I'm a big exerciser. Um I, I would say it's been like the last month or so that i I'm like really back to where I was. Um but it was a very scary time and um
2: we're both sitting here open mouthed. I mean it's cephalitis. That's really sick.
4: Yeah. Um I was on a um I was intubated and um there's a couple of days that like I like don't even remember. Um
2: did you know when you'd been bitten? Did you at least get the little bugger (laughs) you know
4: that's the thing like i i did um i wore like long pants and i used d and i slept with um the nets and um, I don't recall being bitten at all. I I don't even know when I contracted it.
1: Can't you get inoculated for malaria? No, before you, no, no, you no, 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 no. You can't. I thought that no. you could. No.
4: No. You you, you can take um, pills that, perv- like, you can take them before you go. Um, they say that you kind of get sick on them, and then the, it doesn't prevent it 100%.
2: There's two types of malaria medication that you can take. One of them is known to cause, in some people, not in everybody is known to cause in some people like really bad dreams and nightmares and like night terrors. Yeah. It's like really, really, really bad. So, and I forget which one, I'm not going to say which one it is. I know there's two types,
1: Dr. Phil. Dr. <laughs> Phil.
2: The, uh, but the other thing is, and I mean, it's like, do you take it, you know, as a preventative because it's not a hundred percent effective as it, and it can, you know, give you these side effects. But what you take to um, you know, before you go, it's the same thing you take if you get malaria. Right. So lots of experienced yes. travelers will go, Well, I'm not going to take it before because of the side effects, but if I get malaria, I'll take it afterwards. So that's the debate about which you do. I'm not a doctor, <laughs> and you should speak to your own doctor out there <laughs> to get that advice. But I'm just telling you what, you know, experienced travelers say. But I, it sounds, you know, like you got it so badly, it wouldn't have made much difference.
4: Yeah, well, and one of the nurses that treated me, she ended up, um, she also had malaria a couple years ago and had taken the um, preventative pills beforehand and also got it. Um, So it just goes to show that it's a very, um, it's just something that occurs and um, you do your best to to deal with it.
2: I'm trying to think, is it like, you know, like one of the biggest killers globally or something like that? Or is it dysentery or something? I'll look that up. <laughs> look
1: that up Just talk amongst yourselves <laughs> for a moment while I look that look up. Look that up. Okay, so this is a horrible uh, souvenir that you took back from Zambia, but you said while you were there you wrote 15 stories. What was cool about the place and, and what sort of were the highlights?
4: Yeah, well, um, we went to Mafinga, which is like a really pretty rural part of the country, and... Um, and it was just um like where we stayed they didn't have running water and um we didn't have like electricity all the time and um but the people were so kind and I got to see some of like the foundation's work um, out there up close and got to meet with the women um, who are receiving these life-saving surgeries um, from the fistula foundation. And the fact that the women opened up to me um, and share their stories um, was very powerful. So what's, what's the illness or the issue that you're talking about? Um, So it's a hole in the birth canal um, and it, usually happens in developing countries and it's from prolonged labor. Like they might not be able to, um, get to a health facility in time. And so they're just in labor for a long time. Has it put you off going back to any African countries? Um, I don't have any plans to go back right now. Um, I think I will go back. I just like I I've traveled quite a bit and I just I'm kind of taking this year to just recuperate.
2: You you've got a few close friends in the world because there's an estimated 300 to 600 million people get malaria each year. More than 40% of the world's population lives in malaria risk areas. Over a million people die from malaria each year. And here's a really, really sad bit. Mostly children under five years of age.
1: Whoa. And
2: 90% of malaria cases occurring in sub-Saharan Africa.
1: Well, Christy, we wish you best of luck with your recovery and um, thank you so much for sharing your story.
4: Yes, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: (laughs) That is an incredible story and, again, a good idea to check with your doctor on what medications or vaccines are advised when travelling to Zambia. What's travel news?
2: Okay, we love a list, don't we? How about this one for a new one I found? The most disappointing tourist sites. <laughs> see how many of these you've been to and see if you agree. The Mona Lisa in Paris.
1: Uh, I've d- d- didn't go in too small. No. seen on Google. I know a massive Philistine. Do apologise. No. Um, but, yes, you can't get within bull's roar, as they say in Australia.
2: I, I think it's a pretty good painting, but I was more fascinated. Oh, do you? I do. I actually quite what do like think it. you yeah. say?
1: Thanks, Phil. <laughs>
2: I'm not only a doctor, I'm an <laughs> artist. Uh, <laughs> but I was more fascinated by the crowds all, you know, pushed up against the barrier, leaning to get a look and take a photo with it. That was – I love people watching and that was a great spot for it. Uh, Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin. Shocking. Really?
1: Yep. What has Darth Vader and Mario got to do with Checkpoint Charlie? (laughs) What? There's these characters, weird (laughs) characters that are dressed up and they want to have photos with you. It makes no sense.
2: Uh, The Moulin Rouge nightclub in Paris. Haven't been in but it is small from the outside and it's a big tourist trap. It's like, you know, busloads of people turn up at the front. Uh, The Little Mermaid statue in uh, Copenhagen. It's tiny. That's the problem. You think it's this great big statue, it's about the size of a small dog.
1: Oh, yes, a so you
2: get you get all these people turning up looking for it in the harbour and it's just this tiny little thing just
1: disappointing. There.
2: I can't cannot agree with this one as disappointing. The Eiffel Tower. Oh, I loved it. It was great. You had to queue up like you know, forever and all that sort of stuff. No, see, But I again, loved it. We
1: might be slightly different travellers. The best thing for the, for me with the Eiffel Tower was when I walked around and saw this magnificent structure. Mm-hmm. I went up and touched it, or we did, there were four of us, and then walked away.
2: Maybe it's something to do with my, you know, love of building Meccano models when I was a kid might or something. might be. could what be I a like
1: boy-girl thing.
2: Yeah, it could be. I like that one. I uh, can't agree with this. Well, yeah, maybe. The Spanish Steps in Rome. Yeah, it's really on a warm summer day. It's really, really overcrowded. But usual thing is, of course, everybody, you know, goes off to have dinner at a particular time and it empties out a bit and you can get it more or less to yourself. Yeah. um. It's not bad. It's a nice spot. It's a good place to sit down and have some gelato. But, yeah, yeah, fair enough. The Trevi Fountain in Mm. Rome. (laughs) It's actually magnificent sculpture. It really is, but it's been spoiled by the three coins in the fountain and everybody's oh, yeah. standing there and chucking coins over their shoulders. Uh, the, the Louvre in Paris. The entire Louvre is on this list of disappointing. Not sure how you can be disappointed by some of the greatest art in the world, but there you go. Uh,
1: again, didn't I? Didn't go in. We just saw did the that, glass pyramid. I did that stupid thing of let's take a photo pretending you to touch the on, top of it. on the top. Yeah, and then <laughs> you loser. I know, mate. You're talking to somebody that drove past Stonehenge because <laughs> the crowds were too long. <laughs> <laughs> just slowed down. And went, oh, there it is.
2: All right, last one on the list, and you I kind of get this one too. The Leaning Tower of Pisa. Lots of really fantastic towns in Tuscany, and I don't think Pisa is one of them.
1: It's, look, if we've learnt anything over the 60 episodes that we've done of the World Nomads podcast, you don't have to go yep. and see these big ticket items. The
2: number of times I paraphrase Christina Tunner when she was on the program, if you like crusty bread, wine and cheese, any French village will do. Yeah. Yep, Very totally. well said. All right, uh, speaking of over-touristed sites, San Francisco, they're thinking about charging $10, 10 US dollars to drive down one of the city's most famous streets, Lombard Street. Residents they, that's the crooked one yeah. that goes by yeah, and they say local residents say it feels more like a, you know, a theme park than it does like a proper residential street. So, they're thinking about limiting the number of tourists that can go down there to try and balance it up a little bit.
1: Or use the $10 to clean up all the poop. Really? Oh, yeah, no, not San Francisco. Yeah. yeah, it's,
2: yeah, it's yeah. a bad issue. We should put a link in the show notes to that poop map.
1: Yeah, there's actually a, a poop um, app that you can get.
2: For San Francisco. For
1: San Francisco. And
2: it's it's a quite a sad story. Oh, no. But funny as hell, <laughs> you've got a map of it. <laughs> uh, I know we're about the destination and not the method of getting there, but when you travel, you have to spend a fair bit of time getting there. So here's some... Good news, airlines are beginning to phase out reclining seats. Some have already limited the movement to a couple of inches, five centimetres, but many airlines, when they're now ordering their new jets for in the future, they're getting them without the reclining function at all. So that doesn't mean when you sit down, the chair in front of you doesn't encroach in your space.
1: Well, so you've got to sit up upright like a pencil all the way to Paris.
2: Uh, well, no, it's generally for shorter flights.
1: Oh, for short-haul. Yeah, long-haul. Yeah, long, long, haul, long, long haul's difference. Yeah, yeah you, you, yeah, you have to be able to recline. Yeah. Did you like the image of sitting up like a pencil? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Take a photo and put that in show notes. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, thanks for that. Now, Sally Hetherington is president of the Human and Hope Association. It's an Australian charity working towards sustainable development in rural, rural Cambodia. So we're moving away from Zambia for a minute. Sally has worked in Cambodia with the non-for-profit for the past five years and what is interesting is how she found herself there for so
5: long. So I have a pretty interesting story in that when I was 25 I moved to Cambodia because I had this urge to help and I thought the best way to do it was by coordinating foreign volunteers who go and build houses, teach English, etc. But in my first year there I realized that I was contributing to the disempowerment of Cambodians because what was happening was this revolving door of voluntourists which is what they're called short-term foreign volunteers and the local staff were becoming disempowered and the children were having these real attachment issues and because they were already vulnerable children and there's just no stability that way and it just wasn't contributing to the organization's sustainable future. So that's how I started my time in Cambodia and then I realised what I was doing was leaving a negative footprint in Cambodia and I decided okay I can either continue at this organisation, try to change from within which um, I knew wasn't going to happen or I could go back to Australia with my towel between my legs but then I decided, no, you know what, I can do better than this. And so I teamed up with a group of local Cambodians who had formed a nightly English school at a pagoda. And they were teaching English for between 50 cents and a dollar a month uh, to their villages in the hope that they could then have the English schools to get jobs. And I thought, this is great. This is what really needs to happen. It needs to be Cambodians leading their own communities out of poverty. That's the most sustainable way. So I teamed up with them and said, I'm going to help you build this up into a sustainable organisation. But what has to happen is we end the foreign volunteer program and I make myself redundant once it's in a good position, which is exactly what I managed to do.
2: It's a feel good thing and people go overseas and they want to help and they want to They think they're doing the right thing, but it's deeper than
5: that. Definitely. And we all have this urge, and sometimes people don't like the message that I sell because they think that I'm saying, no, you can't help. You can help, but the first thing you have to ask yourself is, would I be of any benefit? Because... A lot of people go over there to build a house when something like 400,000 Cambodians live in Thailand and a lot of them are legally because they cannot get building work in Cambodia. And then you have to think, is it sustainable? Could a local person be doing my job? Am I going to be working with children or the beneficiaries directly? Because you really shouldn't be unless you are a doctor that has to be training a skill that they absolutely cannot get there. You shouldn't be working with them directly. You need to be training the staff. But on that I'm a big believer that if the staff can actually get training in their country through external training providers or university scholarships, you should be supporting them there and you should be supporting the local economy. So really see, are you needed? And if you are passing on your skills, is there a succession plan there? So then if those staff members leave, that knowledge is still passed on. And that's what we have at Human and Hope. It's a great thing is... We are very open with sharing our knowledge and I would always share it and we have a very, very, very low staff turnover because the staff there go, hey, you know what, we got 90% of the students are passing their exams because of what we've done. There's been no outside help. This is us and our commitment. And it, that's the thing that will take people out of poverty.
2: Tell us the truth about many of the orphanages.
5: So unfortunately Australians, Americans, um, Us primarily, we are fueling that demand for orphanages. So, for example, in Cambodia, but this is all over the world. I will add, the number of orphan orphans has decreased, the number of orphanages has increased. About 80% of kids in orphanages have at least one living parent. But because we are going over there and saying, yeah, I want to go play with these orphans. I want to go look in their bedroom, which is so crazy, and play with them for a day and leave these vulnerable kids and be this inconsistent force in their life. We are driving that demand because I'm sure that there are some legitimate orphanages, but it's been proven that kids who are raised in residential institutions are 500 times more likely to commit suicide than those who are not. Um, But what we need to do is stop fueling that demand. And if we stop going to those orphanages, they'll dis- they'll disband.
1: So if they've got a living parent, does the parent drop the child off like it's childcare for the day or how does that
5: work? No, so there's a lot of different ways that they get them. Sometimes the parent is desperate and these orphanages are promising a better life for their kids um, and they don't really know the real situation. And what should be happening is foster care and community-based living. And The Cambodian government is good in that they are recognizing that more, but there's a long way to go in Cambodian Because there's no
2: infrastructure for that. It's It's NGOs who
5: are doing it and but it needs to come from the government.
2: So, you know, what about the old, you know, take a pack of pencils and deliver them to the local school?
5: So I always say definitely support an organization with supplies, but you need to see firstly if it's a need. So always contact the organization first, see what needs they have buy those supplies in that country to support the local economy and also do your research first because, for example, Human and Hope has a visitor policy and we do not allow any photos to be taken of our students. We don't allow more than five people at a time so we don't turn them into a tourist attraction. You know, when I first moved to Cambodia, I had all these thoughts about what I could do because I didn't understand on the ground and that's the worst thing you can do is go to a country thinking that you know everything when it took me a long time to learn you know, from my mistakes. And I was like, L- how about I ship over all these books? I collect secondhand books and ship it to them. And the man at the organisation I originally uh, worked for said, you know what? One time somebody sent us a whole box of books and we had to pay 2000 US dollars. And like I say, just buy the supplies there unless it's something that you really can't get there. That's a very good tip. Yeah.
2: We have a uh, Responsible Travel Manifesto mm-hmm. which we publish uh, at World Nomads and we I encourage everybody to go and read it. And, you know, we've got a few do's and don'ts in there and it's like, as you say, you know, turning people into a tourist attraction mm-hmm. is one of our please don't do that and, you know, visiting orphanages and all those sorts of things. So I do encourage people to read that as well. Look, we've taught – that's a – bit of a negative side about that, okay. but you've, been, you've, all, you've had some great success with what you do. So just definitely. explain, I mean, so now you've started this English school, but it, it's grown from there.
5: Yeah, definitely. So it did start as an English school, as you just said, but we realised that for children to learn, their parents had to earn because otherwise their parents would not let them go to school. So that was really important and a real eye-opener for us that we had to have this holistic approach to development which involved whole families. So it took a while and basically now we have education, vocational training, community support programs all run by the local staff and they're the program managers, they involve the local community because without the community input... You're just telling people what to do and it's just going to fall flat on your face. So we have English classes. We also have Khmer classes, which is the language of Cambodia, because like a third of our students go to public school, but they're illiterate because there's a whole issue with public schools and that can be that they have up to 60 kids in a class. When our preschool class first graduated and transitioned to public school, they didn't have a teacher for six months. But fortunately, we had already taught them their own local language. So that worked out for them, not for the other kids, though. We also have English classes, art class to promote creativity, hygiene, which is a big issue. Um, And we are looking at developing a student leadership program. But then for the adults, we have sewing program, which is really successful. This month is six years that it's been running for. We have seen 20 women move out of poverty and remain out for at least a year. We have seen domestic violence reduce or be eliminated by 70% which is huge because women tend to not have rights in Cambodia. And then we have community support programs to tie it all together, which is a chemical-free farming program and community outreach and also a lot of workshops addressing budgeting, road safety, any social issues we see, we hold workshops to try and improve the knowledge of people and it works really well.
2: There will, as usual, be links in show notes. That's a really good resource, actually. Please do go and check out everything we put in the show notes for you. Uh, Sally has a book due to be released. It's titled It's Not About Me, All About Her Experiences in Cambodia.
1: All right, back to Zambia. Helen is an affiliate partner of World Nomads. And if you want to know more about how you can become one and make money while you travel, check out our episode announcing our writing scholarship winner. There's a whole section on that.
2: And a chat with Seb. Ten years ago, Helen quit her job and headed to Africa, sick of the night to five, sick of the commute and determined to go on the adventures she'd always dreamed about. So how did Helen in Wonderlust come about?
0: Yeah, so basically, I mean, that's exactly how it happened. So I was working in a very corporate job. Um, I'd been there for a number of years, and I just started working out how long I'd been spending in the car. I don't know what, I must have had like a boring afternoon or something, and I just started working out. Like over five years, I'd probably spent three hours a day commuting, and I just, I started to think, oh my God, you know, this is, that's quite a long time. I think it worked out to be like four months of my life or something. So, um, I ended up going traveling and, um, then a few years later back home, I was still, um, missing traveling and I'd really fallen in love with Africa. So I, started looking on the internet about um, Africa traveling and I realized there wasn't really anybody writing about um, backpacking in Africa. So I decided, well, you know, I could start a blog and help people to travel. And that's basically where it started. That was 2013. And then I've just carried on and it's grown. And um, yeah, now I've got my own little community of people who are traveling Africa and it's great.
2: What was it that you Fell in love with what what was it about Africa?
0: Oh, I do you know what? I think it, it's absolutely everything. I mean, there's obviously things that frustrate me, but that also kind of is why I love Africa as well. Um, I don't know, it was just to me, it was such a different place. It was so vibrant. Um, I loved the safaris, I love the sense of community just everything to me was just exciting and different. And it still is even like 10 years later, I still love going there. Um, and I love the fact that when you travel there, it's not, especially the way I travel, it's not kind of a polished travel experience. It's, you know, you see a bit of everything and, you know, I'm often taking local buses and, um, you know, just doing all kinds of things that, you know, a, a different to what I do at home. So I just really fell in love with everything, really. That's what I'm enjoying
1: about the last couple of African countries we've focused on that have really turned themselves around and are keen to pull travellers. Rwanda was one and that's definitely a place I want to yeah. visit. And Zambia, the government, has a huge focus on attracting people there. Um, that's what this episode is about. But we're kind of looking at it beyond Victoria Falls which everyone seems to talk about. But Phil is determined
0: that we're going to touch on it, Helen.
2: Yeah, we have to. You can't not talk about it, can you?
0: It's my favourite place in Africa, actually, so I'd be disappointed if you didn't touch on it.
1: (laughs) All right, so it's the biggest waterfall in the world?
0: Yeah. What else? Um, It's an incredible place for adventure. Um, it's, It's the adventure capital of Africa, really, so there's so many different things to do in and around Victoria falls. Like um, you've got two great towns on either side of, um, of the falls. So obviously you've got Victoria falls on the um, Zimbabwe side, and then you've got Livingston on the Zambia side. Um, my personal favorite is Livingston on the Zambia side, because it's just, it's such a, it's, it's a really, it is a really vibrant town and there's a lot going on there. You get a really local experience whilst also, um, whilst also being able to do all these cool like kind of adventurous touristy activities so it's just got the best of both worlds really but yeah there's so many activities to do um like like i say like actually in the falls so you can do you know things like rafting canoeing you can actually at certain times of the year you can swim underneath the falls which i did last year which was an amazing experience you know you can go and sit at the top of the falls in the devil's pool or the angel's pool um and then there's a national park called mosey oatunya national park which is um which is next to the falls and mosey oatunya means the smoke that thunders in the local language um, you know, you can you can go skydiving, you can jump off the um Zimzam Bridge and do bungee jumping. There's literally so many things to do,
2: but what's the feel like in Livingston then? Because they um, often those places that attract lots and lots of adventure seeking tourists and what have you tend to lose a bit of the local flavor. Has it hung on to that?
0: Yeah, I think it has. Um, it. It's kind of like where you, there's two different kind of parts of Livingston, I think, where people stay. You've got kind of like the side by the river, which is kind of the more upmarket hotels. Um, And then you've got in the town. So a lot of like the backpackers, they stay actually inside the town. And it's very much a local town. I think on the other side of the falls and Victoria Falls, it's a bit more touristy in that sense. But Livingston is very much a working local town. It's... You know, you've got all the local shops, local markets. Um, it really hasn't lost that that flavour. And if you if you're looking for that, you can 100 percent get that local experience. It's it's not it's not overrun in the town by tourists. I think most of the um kind of tourists, a lot of them stay by the river and kind of come in and out to do safaris or see the falls. But when you actually go inside the actual town, there's there's not that many tourists um wandering about. So it still feels like a like a real local African town.
1: Now, you mentioned uh, a lot of people will stay by the river and then venture into the town. As part of the research for this podcast, I, I read that a lot of the national parks and almost all of the accommodations are unfenced, so it's not unusual for an elephant or the odd
0: lion to
1: wander into the town while you're doing your shopping.
0: Is this correct information that I've uncovered? Uh yes, it is. That's on the Victoria Falls side. In on the um Livingston side, no, because um Livingston's too busy a town. There's no way I think you would get any of the animals kind of coming into town. I'm not sure if that's hundred percent fence, but I've seen elephants basically as I'm um as you drive towards Botswana, which isn't very far away, um, you do sometimes see elephants by the side of the road. So when I was um working for the book bus, I um I used to see elephants on my commute to school. Um, But then on the Victoria Falls side of the town, yeah, it's a lot closer. So, yeah, I think sometimes elephants do wander into town. I've never seen any myself, but I do see warthogs um, pottering about town quite a lot. I like how you said that, wartog's pottering potting around town. <laughs> <laughs> we're keen to know about the book bus too. Tell us about that. Yeah, I literally arrived in Zambia. That was my first African country I ever visited and I was volunteering on the book bus. So basically um, what the book bus do is they provide um, like a mobile library service to schools. So what we would do as volunteers, um, we would go around to schools and we would take classes um like at a time like kind of an extracurricular activity really we weren't replacing anything that the teachers were doing and um, what we would do is we'd take the kids um in small little groups and we would read a, a storybook with them Um a lot of the schools in Zambia they don't have any um kind of fun books so
2: I know it's a while ago but do you remember what was the most popular books or what did they like to read
0: um yes I do um there was one. Oh, uh, my favorite book anyway it was Giraffes Can't Dance. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, one of the books that we used to do. We used to, um, yeah, there was things like Elma the Elephant and things like that. All right. Well, that's the, the book. The
1: book bus covered. Another thing we wanted to touch on: is there is so much on your site, and I'd actually shared it with Phil and said, "Mate, there is so much here. What do you want to touch on?" And another uh, of the things that we were interested in was that Overland Train from Zambia to Tan- Tanzania. 10
0: that was quite the experience. So, obviously, but the time I took that train, I'd been in in Livingston and um, Africa um, for for about a month. By the time I I took that train, so it was my first real solo travel experience. Um, I think we were late um, departing. It was the most rickety train i mean it it was it was great you know there were so many people taking this train it was just amazing just to sit there looking out the window um, there were so many people around the tracks and the train went quite slow in a lot of places. And we'd stop in towns and there'd be people outside the train, you know, selling all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, SIM cards and fruit, lots of different types of things. So, you, you know, you could uh, at point, you could get off the train and interact with people, which I did quite a lot, stretch my legs and things like that. Um, and then the train would start moving again, you'd have to kind of like run and jump back onto it, which was great. um, yeah, no, it was amazing. It, only thing was it, we, we did break down a couple of times, I think. I think one time we stopped in the middle of the night, and I have no idea why we stopped for so long. Um, I heard a rumour that we'd run out of fuel, but I don't know if that's true or whether Andy. something else happened. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, it was an amazing experience, but we ended up actually arriving 24 hours late into Dara's salon. <laughs> Um So, you know, it was just very typical and you know, an amazing way, I think, to start off my true solo travels in Africa.
1: A link to Helen's site, again, will be in show notes. It's our Bible, really, isn't it? it? If you enjoyed this episode on Zambia and would like to hear of another great African destination, and given Helen mentioned it and we mentioned it, how about our episode on Tanzania?
4: lots of the national parks, depending on where you're going and where you're staying, they will have public campsites so there are some very basic facilities provided like a, a blockhouse of showers and toilets, maybe like a little kitchen or a dining room eating area under thatch. These are unfenced campsites so a lot of the tented camps and lodges across various parks in Africa are also totally unfenced regardless of your accommodation the animals are, can be passing through your camp and you know they don't necessarily care what you're in.
2: You can find the latest episode through all of your uh, popular Podcast apps and players, but the easiest way to listen is just to go to worldnomads.com forward slash podcasts. And if you've got anything you want to say to us or any suggestion, you can email us at podcast at worldnomads.com.
1: If you know someone who loves travel as much as you do and we do, please tell them about us. We'd appreciate any likes, shares, and social love you would care to give us. Yes,
2: please. Uh, next week, it's another amazing nomad. Bye.
5: Bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.